Um, got you for a few minutes tonight, so I, I want to I help us see from the story of Jonah, which I'm sure is a story that most of you have a passing familiarity with. I want to help you see from Jonah the sovereignty of God. And here's why I want to do that with us in the room tonight. You're often asked questions or you're often trying to think about how to answer pushback or questions about the gospel, about why you believe what you believe, about why you hold to a biblical sexual ethic of one man, one woman in marriage for forever. Sex outside of that is wrong. There's no other way to faithfully express God's design for marriage and for sex outside of that paradigm. Or maybe you're thinking about how to answer questions of systematic injustice and oppression that exists both in the U.S. and outside of the U.S. And if we're not careful, the reason I want to talk about God's sovereignty tonight is this. If we're not careful, we will start to answer those questions and then have to back our way into building a God who fits how we answered that question on the front end. And do you see where that can become problematic? Our ability to rightly defend our faith, while we need to know how to answer those questions, the ability to have a firm conviction about how to contend for or defend our faith or present our faith has to be rooted in a right understanding of who God is. You can't answer the way you want to answer and then construct a God to fit your answer. You're not going to, you'll rarely get back to the God of the Bible if that is your preferred method of thinking through how to answer these difficult worldview questions. But if you can understand who God is and you can understand to the ability that our minds can understand who God is from Scripture, then it gives you a foundation and a firm place to stand when you begin to dialogue with others, either other believers who hold a different view than you or non-believers who have serious questions about their faith, about your faith and about what it would look like for them to maybe trust in Jesus. And so tonight, one of the most bedrock things you have to believe about God is that God is sovereign. And so that's what I want to unpack for us tonight. One of the movies I absolutely love is The Truman Show. Anybody here seen The Truman Show? So Netflix, if you right now, um, so you can go. It's not going to come up there, but um, you can go see it. I I love the Truman Show because it was a movie that was so far ahead of its time, and it's one of the two movies that Jim Carrey made where he's in a more serious role and tells a good story and has more of a lasting impact than a lot of his comedy. The other one is Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. I can't say that I recommend it or not recommend it, um, but I just think it is a really good movie. But in The Truman Show, Truman Burbank, who's played by Jim Carrey, lives an ideal life on this created island called Sea Haven, where he works as an insurance salesman and is married to his lovely wife, Meryl. But what Truman, what Truman doesn't know is that his entire life is the longest-running reality TV show in the world. Kristoff is the Truman Show creator and the one responsible for all that is experienced in Truman's life and in the fictitious world of Sea Haven. As the ones watching from the outside, both as ones watching the movie and the TV audience that is following along in the movie, we are all aware of the truth of who it is that is orchestrating the events in Truman's life. The only person not aware is the person most directly affected, Truman 
Burbank. And in the climactic scene of the movie, Truman is on a boat determined to sail away from Sea Haven and discover life outside of the world he has always known. What we know is that he's living in a dome, and if he sails to the end, he's going to run into a wall. And so Christoph, the creator, gives instructions to those in the command center with him up in the moon as, as it is in the movie. And they begin to crank up a storm on the sea. And the whole goal of cranking up this storm on the sea is to get Truman to turn around and to go back to safety, to give up his pursuit of finding life outside of Sea Haven. Because if he gets to the edge of the TV studio, of the TV lot, then the gig is up. And as the storm increases, Truman on the boat screams at the sky, is that the best you can do? You're going to have to kill me. Truman's response, much like us, even as believers, but even more so before we were believers, is typical of those who do not have a proper understanding of God's sovereignty. Everything feels happenstance, everything feels against us, and we eventually find ourselves with fists clenched, screaming at the sky, is that the best you can do, God? You're just going to have to kill me. So let's pray. Jesus, tonight we come humbly confessing that we are not sovereign. We're sinners in need of great saving grace. And so tonight would we wrestle with what it looks like to live under the good, gracious, sovereign rule of our Father? Will we consider what it looks like to have a firm confidence, not in arrogance, not a boastfulness, but just a firm confidence that you are sovereign in all things? And would it give us strength and courage in the days and the weeks and the years of ahead of our lives that we would be faithful witnesses for the gospel? In Christ's name, amen. Jonah chapter 1, verses 4 through 16. I'm not going to read it to you, not because I don't think the Bible has value, but I'm just going to summarize it for you. Because if you read Jonah 1, 4 through 16, it's all seemingly very self-explanatory. Just as a face value reading, if you have general reading comprehension skills, you can read those 13 verses and really have an understanding of what's going on. So, Here's what we see. Jonah is on the boat. The Lord sends a storm. The captain and crew freak out. The ship shows signs. That's a tongue twister. The ship shows signs of breaking apart. And the crew begins to throw their cargo overboard while calling out to their gods for help. All the while, Jonah has gone below deck and is peacefully sleeping exhausted from his running and the captain goes below deck and wakes up a sleeping Jonah and calls and begs him to call out to his God that perhaps his God will hear and rescue them from the storm and spare the lives of everyone involved now we know that this was a pretty ferocious storm if you've got experienced sailors who are worried that they are going to lose their life due to the intensity of the storm Jonah comes up onto the deck. The crew casts lots to determine who is responsible for the current predicament. The lot falls on Jonah. He tells the crew where he came from. He tells them who, who is the God that he fears. He says that he is actually running from this God. And as Jonah shares this with the captain and crew, their fear only increases, and they want to know what they must do to appease Jonah's God and have their own lives spared. So Jonah, in a moment of resignation to what he feels like is the inevitable outcome of this storm and his running, asked them to pick him up 
and throw him overboard, knowing that when he hits the waters, the storm will relent. In one last futile attempt, in really one of the greatest shows of mercy in the entire book, the crew of the boat tries to row back to shore in the midst of this ever-increasing storm. They want to do the best that they can to try to make sure that Jonah survives. The storm is too powerful, it continues to increase, and they cannot make land. So the sailors ask for the Lord's pardon over the life of Jonah, and they pick him up and they throw him overboard. The storm subsides, and the sailors sacrifice and make vows to the Lord. This all seems really straightforward, right? It's like, okay, now what's next? Like, we're all conditioned to wait because we want to know what happens with the fish, right? Like, that's we're like, all right, well, he's in the water, so can we get to the fish part of the story? But before we get to the fish part of the story, and we're not going to get there tonight, but before you get to the fish part of the story, you've got to understand what the writer of Jonah is wanting us to see. You've got to understand what the writer of Jonah is trying to communicate in these few short verses. And I don't think he's trying to tell us primarily about Jonah and the pagan crew of the boat. I believe the author is trying to raise our eyes and our minds and our hearts to look beyond these circumstances to the God who is orchestrating and directing all that these men are experiencing. And so the author states in Jonah 1.4, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. And Jonah later in 1.9 responds to the question of the mariners by stating, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. What's fascinating about Jonah's response is this. They said, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country and of what people are you? And when Jonah answers, he says that he fears the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And at no point did they ask about the God that he worshipped. And so if we're going to be good readers of the Bible, we have to be careful readers of the Bible. And we have to ask ourselves at certain points, why was this detail included? Why did the biblical writer, why did the Spirit's inspiration of this writer cause this detail to be included? The author of Jonah, I believe, includes these details so that those who hear and read the story of Jonah would realize that Jonah's God, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, is sovereign over nature. And this is the testimony of the Old Testament to the world that Jonah inhabited. When we say that God is sovereign in general, sovereign period, or God is sovereign over nature, we are saying that God is in complete control of all things and everything does as he commands. There is no rogue particle, there is no rogue atom in all of the universe. Everything exists and is held together and is deployed by God's good decree to accomplish his eternal purposes, including nature. This is what the Psalms say. Psalm 33, 7. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Psalm 147, 7 and 8. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures in all deeps, fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind fulfilling his word. Psalm 89, 8 and 9. O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you? You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. 
And Jeremiah in chapter 10, verses 12 to 13 says regarding God, It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom, and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. When he utters his voice, there is a tumult of waters in the heavens, and he makes the mist rise from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain, and he brings forth the wind from his storehouses. God is sovereign over nature. But do you really believe that on what Paul Tripp would call your street-level theology? It's one thing for me to read it to you from the Scriptures, and you go, yeah, of course I agree with Scripture. Come on, man. But, I mean, we know about high-pressure systems, and we know about low-pressure systems, and we can watch the weather, and we can check the weather on our app. But is God really sovereign over nature still? Amen. If we're not careful with all of our understanding and with all of the knowledge that is at our fingertips and with our ability to look seven, ten, even two weeks ahead on the weather, we can begin to doubt that God really is sovereign over such things. Does he really have storehouses for the wind? Does he really have storehouses for the snow? Is he in control of where the rain does fall and where the rain doesn't fall? Is he in control of where the wind blows and where the wind doesn't blow? Is he sovereignly able to work through the groaning, as Paul would say in Romans 8, through the groaning of the earth as it awaits the revealing of the sons of God? Is he able to work through natural disasters that are a result of a sinful world? Is he able to sovereignly work through a hurricane and a tornado and an avalanche and a blizzard and any other weather condition we could face? Is he sovereignly in control of those things? The answer should be yes. God created the world. God created nature. Therefore, God is able to sovereignly use the weather and the rest of creation to achieve his eternal purposes. He did not create nature, the weather, and the physical world and then hand it over to lesser gods to manage. He is the God who is sovereign over nature or he isn't God. As the late R.C. Sproul said, God is sovereign or he is not God. God is sovereign over everything, or He is not God. Now, I think the first thing we see in Jonah 1 is we're mentally thinking about when we get to the fish and how does He survive in the fish. and All of that is secondary in the moment to God's sovereign control of nature. And here's why this is so important. We have to be people who can lovingly and graciously affirm God as He has revealed Himself in the Scriptures. And trust that if we are faithful in how we represent and speak about and share about the God of the Scriptures, that He will sovereignly do what He's always done, which is draw people to Himself and save them. You do not need to be an apologist for God's sovereignty. The 
You do not need to be an apologist for God's sovereignty, meaning you do not have to say sorry because our God is sovereign. And so we wrestle with this truth of God's sovereignty over nature and his ability to employ it to serve his eternal purposes. And then we read this in Jonah 1.14 from the sailors as they're getting ready to toss Jonah overboard. They say, Oh Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O oh Lord, have done as it pleased you. Here we have, not from God's prophet, but from the pagan sailors, an admission and a submission to the sovereign rule of God in all things. It's in their words when they say, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us the innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. They are confessing and submitting to the sovereign rule and reign of God. At the beginning of the storm, they were crying out to their gods for assistance, and now they find themselves acknowledging the supremacy of Jonah's God. There are moments like this that happen in our lives and in the lives of people we know. There are moments where even the most hard-hearted non-believer, the most anti-religion religious person you know will be brought to moments where they have to acknowledge even if but for a second that God is in heaven and he does whatever he pleases. But here's the reality for the sailors. What turned into a moment's recognition could very easily turn into a clenched-fisted scream about how God operates beyond that point. This momentary submission and acknowledgement of God's sovereignty is not the same as submitting to and trusting God's sovereignty. You can offer a mental or a verbal assent to a sovereign God who rules over all things, and you can keep your heart away from submitting to that sovereign, loving, gracious, and good God. It is not enough to be in the camp of the pagan sailors where in a moment you acknowledge God's sovereignty. There is the reality for the believer where we acknowledge it, we accept it, and through Christ we submit to his sovereign rule. So many times with these hard doctrines, with these parts of Scripture and these parts of God's character that cause us to stretch our minds and cause us to wrestle with truth, we find ourselves wanting to give mental assent, but not wanting to have hearts submitted. We find ourselves more often than not like the pagan sailors than we do glad-hearted servants of the King who has saved us. This verbiage, this phrase of God is in the heavens, He does all that He pleases, occurs three other times in the Old Testament. And I want to read those to you. Psalm 115, 1 through 8. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. 
their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. Psalm 135, 5 through 7 and 15 through 18. For I know that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them, in Isaiah 46, 5 through 10, to whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god. Then they fall down and worship. They lift it to their shoulders, they carry it, they set it in its place, and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. God sovereignly employs nature for his eternal purposes. God sovereignly employs all things because he created all things for the supreme eternal purpose of seeing his son glorified and exalted forever through his redeemed people. God bends his sovereign will towards us in redemption, in love, in grace, in mercy, and in forgiveness. If we only knew God's sovereignty with no other attendant attributes such as his love or his grace or his mercy, he would be a God to be feared because you would have no way of knowing if he was just going to wipe you out in a fit of anger because you dared question his sovereignty. But if if the whole of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation is true, then we have a God who is not only sovereign over nature, but is sovereign over history and time and has sent His Son at the right time to die in our place, sovereignly bringing Him into the world through a virgin, having Him live a perfect, sinless life, not to establish His righteousness because He was already righteous, but to give us a righteousness to hide in, and sent Him to the cross and sovereignly kept Him on the cross until the wrath of God was satisfied and then sovereignly raised him from the dead so that he would walk out of the grave with the keys over Satan, sin, and death. If we read all of the scripture, then we do not have a sovereign God we should cower before. We have a sovereign God we should humbly submit to in worship and praise and adoration because where we would use sovereignty solely for our own good and our own glory. God uses His sovereignty for His glory, but for our good. And so the testimony of those three scriptures where it says that the Lord is in heaven and He does whatever He pleases is an invitation into mystery. To affirm God's sovereignty is to affirm that you are going to live in a state of mystery 
for all of your life. To affirm God's sovereignty is not to remove all mystery. It's to step into the mystery of who God is and how he operates and how he has orchestrated the world and live with confident, humble submission because we have history past to tell us where the future is going. And so when we read these scriptures, we have before us the option of becoming like an idol or living in mysterious worship before the sovereign God of the universe. And here's the deal. We want control so bad. We want to know all the answers. We want to have all of our whys answered that more often than not, if we're honest, we prefer the idol over our Savior. We love certainty. We worship certainty. We think that certainty is the only way we can live by faith. But what the Scriptures say is if you want certainty, create an idol and then be prepared for that idol to never answer or never deliver on your biggest needs when you face your biggest problems. Or you can submit to a sovereign God who sits in heaven and does all that He pleases. He does all that He pleases, and here's the deal. He doesn't know you an explanation for why He does it. Go back and read Job. He never answers Job's question about why. Ever. He just reminds Job who He is. He's the sovereign creator of all things. This invitation into standing before God's sovereignty is an invitation to mystery. It's an invitation to knowing that we don't serve a God that is small enough for us to understand fully. If you have a God you understand fully, you no longer have the God of the Bible. If you have a God that never invites you into mystery, you no longer have the God of the Bible. If you don't have a God that you eventually look up and go, He is in heaven and He is doing whatever He pleases, and I am strangely okay with that. If you're never to that point, you may not even have the God of the Bible that you're worshiping. So when we read in Jonah about God being in heaven and doing what he pleases, we see the writer along with the other Old Testament writers pointing us to this truth that Brian Estelle lays out in his commentary on Jonah. These three verses from Isaiah and the two Psalms all overlap with Jonah 1.14 and make the point that worshiping any other God besides Yahweh is futile. Moreover, his power stretches to every corner of creation in the heavens and the earth. The Lord does whatever pleases him. This is the God we worship. All idols will be crushed under him. Every knee will bow under the weight of his glory when he appears. To trust in idols and to worship other gods is in the end a fool's errand that leads to death. So as we close our time tonight, as maybe you go back and over the next week you'll read Jonah. 
In other words, we close our time tonight. I think we're left to wrestle with this question of how big our God really is. How powerful is your God really? How sovereign is your God? Because I would like to submit to you this. How you answer the question of God's sovereignty will directly affect how you understand your salvation. It will directly affect how you understand and process your suffering when it comes. To answer the question of God's sovereignty helps us to know how to best rejoice in our hope. To submit to God's sovereignty helps us understand how we do the work God has called us to. And ultimately, how we answer the question of God's sovereignty will determine how we face death. And can I just say that probably what 98% of the people you interact with on campus are afraid of the most is death. That everything that they're trying to construct their lives around, everything that they're giving their lives to is in some form or another a way to try to push death off. A way to try to not have to think about their own mortality. A way to not have to wrestle with, at some point, this all ends for every one of us. And can I just say that if you'll wrestle with God's sovereignty and it'll help you understand how to live even now as 18, 19, 20, 35-year-olds, if you'll allow God's sovereignty to affect and change how you view death, then here's the deal. It'll change how you live for Him today. If God's sovereign over life and over death, what do you have to fear? If God's sovereign over your life and if God's sovereign over when you're going to die, what do you have to fear? If God is sovereign over your life and over your death, then you will not die before your time. If God is sovereign over life and over death, then you will have ample strength and opportunity to do the work that God has given you to do until he calls you home. If God is sovereign over life and over death, then the one thing that everyone else around you fears the most becomes your best friend. Because if God is sovereign over death, then death is just, as Trip Lee would say, the doorway to your faithful lover. How we answer the question of God's sovereignty matters immensely. How we think about the effect of God's sovereignty on our evangelism, on our day-to-day -day life, on the careers that we choose, on the spouses that we choose, on where we live, on the jobs, everything falls under the umbrella of God's sovereign rule and God's sovereign care.
And so how we understand it, how we process it, how we live in light of it does so much to determine our effectiveness in ministry now. I lived most of my life terrified that I was going to contract some form of incurable cancer. I almost had a nervous breakdown in college because I lived by myself and I would come home at night and I would sit around and I would think, okay, I've got this pain in my side. I've probably got stage four or some kind of cancer. This has been a good run. I'm 20. A lot I didn't get done, but I'm about to be out of here. I spent a lot of time concerned about myself. I wasted a lot of good ministry opportunities. Missed a lot of good ministry opportunities because all I could think about was me. The invitation to believe and to trust in God's sovereignty is an invitation to take your eyes off of yourself. It's an invitation to look at the world and see the world the way that God sees it. To see the people in front of you who are hurting, to see the people in front of you who have questions, to see the people in front of you who have doubts, to see the people in front of you for image bearers of God who need to hear the good news that Christ has died for them. To live under the gracious and sovereign rule of God is to live with a free invitation to not be so focused on yourself. That was part of Jonah's problem. Jonah loved Jonah more than anybody else. And he had to have a crash course in the sovereignty of God to free his eyes and his heart from loving himself more than his God. So my prayer for us is that the mystery of how God works sovereignly, even while we maintain responsibility for our actions and how he rules with power in all things, would not cause our hearts to become cold, unfeeling, and shriveled. Rather, it would draw true heartfelt worship out of us as we acknowledge with humble and loving hearts the beauty contained in the mystery of our great God and King. Let's pray. Father, you are good and you're sovereign and you control all things. There's nothing outside of your control. And so that gives us as believers great comfort. That means our salvation wasn't outside of your control. That means our future security isn't outside of your control. That means even now we are not living outside of your control, but you are working in and through all things to bring history to its sovereignly decreed end, which is the return of Jesus, the establishment of a new heavens and a new earth, where those who have trusted Christ will enjoy fellowship with him and one another forever and so god would the truth of your sovereignty give us great trust would it give us great boldness would it remove so much of the fear that categorizes so much of our life and would it make us faithful servants of you until you call us home in your sovereignly appointed time in christ's name amen